You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Well, we're hitting pause this morning on our Sermon on the Mount series. We've, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount for quite a long time. In fact, we started that series uh, in the old building. And so a lot of you may not have been here for the beginning of that series or you're jumping in partway. And we're about to leave that series to the side for a moment during the Easter season. So what I want to do today is sort of go back and review some of the background and comment on a couple aspects of Jesus' message uh, as it's conveyed in the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament. Um, Because for the last several weeks, we've been examining these aspects of the Sermon on the Mount and specific teachings in sort of a very granular, focused way. And every now and again, it's good to zoom out and to get sort of a broader vantage point, uh, which is what I would like to do today. Um, My mic feels a little hot to me. If we bring it down a little bit, I can talk a little bit louder, and that might even things out. So... So today we're going to, that sounds perfect, today we're going to answer two questions, okay, two questions. First question, what was Jesus' gospel? What was the message that he preached? Jake, Jake gave it away earlier, but, <laughs> but what, was, what was the message that Jesus came to bring? What was the good news which he longed to get into the hearts of people? And then the second question we will look at is, what is Jesus' expectation of those who would follow him? And so before we dig into these, these verses and these questions, I need to reestablish the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the social context. Um, Jesus shows up at a very spe- specific and deliberate time and place in human history. He shows up among the Jews. And the cultural memory of Jesus' Jewish audience in the first century Uh, involves a lot of trauma. It involves a lot of suffering and oppression from slavery in Egypt as told in the book of Exodus to exile in Babylon as explained in the book of Daniel and in many of the prophetic books. They went into exile in Babylon in the year 585 BC. Nebuchadnezzar II laid siege to Jerusalem and carried off many, many Judeans into Babylon for exile. And they were kept there uh, for a very long time. Some came back in the mid 500s, some didn't come back till 100 years later in the mid 400s. But they were set free from Babylonian captivity because Babylon had been conquered by the Persians. And the Persian king said, well, I don't really care if you go back to your own land, so go ahead. So they went back, but they weren't free. And then in the year 331 B.C., Alexander the Great comes through this area in his conquest of the Eastern world, and he conquers the Persians. And when Alexander the Great conquered a territory, he didn't just mean to rule over it with might. He meant to change the culture of the territory and to impose the Greek worldview, which is called Hellenism, onto the people there. And so that is what he sought to do. That was Alexander the Great's project. Now, he did this through various cultural institutions that didn't exist there before, like theater and the arts, um, like hospitals and healthcare, like athletics and competitions like that, like um, bathhouses and gymnasiums and Greek education. And so this is the way you change a culture. You do it through the arts, you do it through education, and you do it through political maneuvering and stuff like this. And so that's what Alexander the Great did, and he very thoroughly evangelized this area for the Greek 
worldview. Now, he died prematurely, very young. He died in his early 30s. And when he died, he passed control of the kingdom off to one of his generals. And then pretty soon, his generals start fighting over it. Um, and things start to get pretty hairy for the Judeans living in this area because they are facing increasing pressure to be assimilated into Greek culture. Um, and so this, uh, the, I've gotten lost in my notes on the first page already. Please pray for me. Um, <laughs> the Greek worldview and the Jewish worldview are completely at odds with one another. They're completely antithetical. The Jewish worldview is a theocentric worldview, and the, which means it's God-centered. And the Greek worldview is an anthropocentric worldview, which means it's human-centered. And so in the Hellenistic Greek worldview, the human mind is the basis for truth, and the human body is the ultimate in wisdom, and human pleasure is the ultimate goal in life. And Hellenism, as expressed here, is sort of the ancestor of modern-day secular humanism. In the Jewish worldview, by contrast, uh, rather than the human mind and human reason being the basis for truth, God defines truth, and we trust God's revelation. Rather than human wisdom being the height of wisdom, God's wisdom is the true wisdom, and we must acquire wisdom from God. And lastly, the ultimate goal in life is not just human pleasure, but it's to do what's good and right in the eyes of God. And so these competing worldviews that are completely at odds with one another, uh, the tension begins to boil up, and soon the, uh, the Greek rulers begin to persecute the Jews systematically. Uh, they make it illegal to circumcise their children, which was a very important sign of the covenant that God had made with these people. Uh, they make it illegal to rest on the Sabbath, which was another defining characteristic of these people. Um, and this persecution bubbles over into a war for Jewish independence in the year 167 BC. They win it. They rededicate their temple. That's what Hanukkah celebrates. And they achieve an independent state for about 100 years. And then the Romans come in. And the Romans were, had fully adopted this Greek worldview and came in to uh, impose it even more on the Jews. And beyond, uh, beyond the, the sort of cultural impositions that we talked about a moment ago, they add taxes on top of this and just tax these people into oblivion to the point when they were giving half of their income right off the bat was going to the Romans. And so during this time, uh, the Jewish people are trying to figure out, like, well, what is God going to do about this? This is a problem. We are in trouble we are being persecuted and oppressed and mistreated. What is God going to do about this? Is he faithful to us? Has he made promises to us? Is he good and powerful to intervene? And so they began to look back at their scriptures in the Old Testament. And they saw that God had promised an inbreaking deliverance called the kingdom. The kingdom of God is an expression that embodies all of the hopes of the Jewish people that God would one day uh, break in and remove all evil from the world and inaugurate a new and unprecedented age of blessing and prosperity and joy. And this hope was nourished by a number of different Old Testament texts, and it touched every area of life. So here are just a few dimensions of the kingdom. One, it has a spiritual dimension— because in the kingdom, the power of sin would be destroyed, and Yahweh, 
God would be universally worshipped as the one true God, as we see in Isaiah chapter 11. It was political in the sense that God's people would be released from the power of the various Gentile governments that had afflicted them with so much suffering and pain and persecution throughout the course of history. We see that in Daniel 7. We see that the war, uh, war and the lust for power would be replaced by the politics of peace. We see that in Isaiah 9. And it has an economic dimension. There's an economic hope because the new world of God's kingdom would know nothing of poverty, hunger, famine, or deprivation, as we see in Isaiah chapters 32 and 35. So the kingdom of God, that phrase, this idea, it expresses the hope for a world in which the powers of sin and death and darkness are replaced by peace and justice and the worship of the one true God. So in essence, it's the hope that the rule of God as king of the universe will someday be restored over all creation. So in the Jewish and Christian traditions, the kingdom of God is expressed wherever God's people are doing God's will. Okay, the kingdom of God is expressed wherever God's people are doing God's will. Now, how specifically did Jesus' hearers, the, the Jewish community of his time, how did they uh, understand the kingdom? How did they react against the Greek worldview, and how did they expect this new rule of God to be ushered in? There were several different responses among the major streams of Judaism in this period of time. So the first stream is the Sadducees. The Sadducees. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you've heard of the Sadducees before. The Sadducees were the priestly class, the priestly class who controlled the temple in Jerusalem and controlled the sacrificial system and everything that goes along with the temple. Uh, and they were corrupt. John the Baptist criticizes them. Jesus criticizes them. Their strategy, their way of dealing with the influx of Hellenism in the Greek worldview uh, was to just assimilate into Greek and Roman culture and then to try to achieve their specific goals through political maneuvering. Um, another group that we have is the Essenes. The Essenes uh, took a different approach. They retreated to the wilderness. They moved way, way out into the desert, and they formed faithful communities that were, they, they wanted to be unpolluted by the worldview. So they said, we've got to get all the way away from it. We have to go be in the desert just with us so that we don't even interact with it. So they're characterized by asceticism and devotion, and the Essene community is what produces uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Another stream is the zealots, and the zealots took the approach of, of we have to retake control of our land by force, um, and so they were assassins, um, they were characterized by insurgent violence against the occupying force, and then there's the fourth stream, uh, which we will spend most of our time talking about today, and that fourth stream is the fourth stream is the Pharisees, and the Pharisees' approach was they thought if we live faithful lives, faithful to God's commandments, in the midst of this oppressive culture, so we're not going to go to the desert, we're going to stay where we are, but we're going to try and live faithful lives right where we are, and re in so doing, remain distinct from that culture and maintain our culture identity, our, our cultural identity, uh, as the people of God, and we're going to maintain it through our righteous living. And in their minds, this would show God 
that they had learned from the lessons of exile. Now see, when they were in exile in Babylon and dealing with all of this oppression from the Greeks over the centuries before Jesus, they looked to the Old Testament and they looked to places like Deuteronomy 28, where God says, if you keep these commandments I give you, I will bless you. I will bless you like crazy. You'll be blessed in the city. You'll be blessed in the country. Your kids will be blessed. Your cow will be blessed. Your kneading basket will be blessed. Everything will be blessed. But he says, if you disobey these commandments that I give to you, you will be cursed. And one of these curses was that foreign nations would come in and dominate and oppress them. So they read this passage and they interpret it as meaning, well, the reason that we've had these horrible experiences is we have not been faithful enough to the law. And so we need to up our commitment to the law. And not only us, but we need to impose that commitment to the law on everybody, on the whole community. And so that's what they sought to do. They were characterized by this stringent faithfulness to the law of Moses. The Pharisees were the largest of these four groups. They were headquartered in Capernaum and areas around the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. The Sadducees and the priestly class were in Jerusalem. The Pharisees are further out near the Sea of Galilee, and they control the synagogue system, which means that they controlled the education system of the Jewish community. And they raised the standard for religious purity in the, in the community. So what they did was they took the stuff that was meant only to apply to the priests, and they applied it to all people in terms of which rules you have to follow to remain ritually pure. And it's into this context, these people who have suffered under uh, oppression in various forms over the centuries, these people who have this deep cultural memory of trauma, uh, these people who are living in the midst of an oppressive government as Jesus appears on the scene, it's into this context that he walks. These people who are waiting so desperately to experience this inbreaking kingdom of God, which would restore his rule over all creation and put an end to evil, oppression, injustice forever and usher in a new, uh, a new age of peace and blessing and joy and communion with God. And into that context, Jesus comes and he says, repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is near. And that is Jesus' gospel. That is the good news that Jesus longed to get into the hearts of people. He said the kingdom of, heavens, of the heavens is near or at hand, which means it's within reach. It is available. It is arriving. The thing that they had waited so long for was now here in a very real and tangible way. And so the response to that, he says, you've got to repent. And repent just means rethink your life. Rethink your life. He says the, the reality of the availability of the kingdom of God to any person should stop all of us in our tracks and cause us to reflect on our own life and rethink our options in light of that availability. Rethink our options as to whether we're going to spend our lives building our own kingdom or whether we're going to spend our lives participating in and experiencing the kingdom of the heavens. Now, Jesus' kingdom is different in some ways from what they expected. Not in all ways, but in some ways, and they're important ways. Jesus speaks about the kingdom more than anything else in the Gospel of Matthew, which would suggest that his vision of the kingdom is different and that he had to disciple them, teach them a new understanding. And he does this through sermons and parables. So he tells them a parable that the kingdom is like a mustard seed. 
It's organic. It's not organizational. It begins in obscurity, and it grows secretly and invisibly and surprisingly and irresistibly until it's overtaken the whole garden. He tells parables about people who will reject the kingdom, which would have been shocking to his hearers because they've all been waiting and hoping for it. They couldn't imagine that there would be anyone who wouldn't want to enter in, and yet Jesus says some people won't. He explains that the kingdom is more inclusive than they'd ever thought, and that it would not be for the Jews only, but that it would be for all people everywhere. And he teaches that access to the kingdom of the heavens is not gained through status of any kind, whether it's religious status, economic status, social or political status. And this is the essence of the Beatitudes with which he begins the Sermon on the Mount, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, the merciful, those who mourn, the meek, the oppressed, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness uh, because they look around and don't see it anywhere. They are blessed, Jesus says, because the kingdom of heaven is for them. Now, it's crucial, one thing that's really important to understanding the kingdom is that we have to understand the idea of inaugurated eschatology. I promise I'm not going to use too many words like that today. I'm going to explain what it means. You know what inaugurated means. It means something has begun. When we inaugurate a new president, it means their term has begun. Eschatology is just a word in Christian theology for what happens at the end. Where, where is this all going? What is God going to do at the very end? And so the kingdom is connected with this. And inaugurated eschatology means that in, the Christian, in Christian spirituality, in the Christian worldview, we are living in that new age of the kingdom, though not yet fully only in part. So this is, this is a paradox. We have two ages of human history which are overlapping one another, and we live in that overlap in the middle. There's, there's a really easy way to uh, understand this, and it's to think about the holiday of Juneteenth. Okay, so June, on, the Emancipation Proclamation was issued by Abraham Lincoln on January 1st, 1863. So he signed it, and he declared that all who were held as slaves in the rebellious states in the South uh, were effectively and shall be free. And it wasn't a total solution to the problem of racism and racial oppression and violence, but it did change the tide of the Civil War. Because af and after the Emancipation Proclamation, every advance of Union troops into slaveholding territories brought with it that freedom and that reality that had been inaugurated with the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. It allowed African Americans into the Union Army, and those who were liberated from bondage became liberators themselves. Now, because Texas was the furthest slaveholding state away from where that announcement was made, it, it didn't reach us right away. It took two and a half full years for the news that slavery had been sort of de facto abolished in the Confederacy to reach uh, Texas, their freedom had been proclaimed and inaugurated, but that freedom had not yet been realized. They were, in fact, free, and yet they were also, in fact, not. They were in this middle, this already not yet place. But the realization of that freedom depended on the advancement of the agents of freedom. And in the same way, our world is in that middle place the already not yet tension, the kingdom of the heavens, God's rule over all creation, this new age of hope and joy and blessing has been inaugurated and it is being advanced, but it is not fully realized and its advancement depends on the agents of the kingdom. So that's you and me. That's Jesus' gospel of the kingdom. That is his good news, that God's new age is in effect and you can access it, participate in it, 
and experience it. So what's his expectation? His expectation for his followers in light of this message, in light of this new reality, how are those people who would claim to follow Jesus supposed to respond and engage with this? His expectation is laid out in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, where he says this, Truly I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. So he's just finished telling them about how available the kingdom is. About how the, you know, we're not knocking on the door of the kingdom. The kingdom is knocking on our door. And yet, we will never enter it without a righteousness that goes beyond that of the Pharisees and the experts in the Mosaic Law. See, this would have been an absolutely shocking, shocking statement for the people that were sitting there listening to Jesus teach the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Pharisees were the gold standard of Jewish practice in this day. Did you know, I, I learned this recently, did you know that of all the people groups who the Roman Empire interacted with and sort of conquered, only two people groups in the history of the Roman Empire were never fully assimilated, the Jews and the Picts in Scotland. Only those two. Pharisaical Judaism, Pharisaical interpretation of the Old Testament, um, or the Hebrew Bible, forms the basis for Jewish, whoop, forms the basis for Jewish practice all the way to today. So you have to understand, the Pharisees, in, in many ways, saved Judaism at this time. These people, Jesus' hearers, they could not conceive of a righteousness that would go beyond uh, the Pharisees. They devoted their entire lives to memorizing and studying and teaching the law of Moses, and yet Jesus criticizes them, and he condemns them, not for their sin, which is common to all people, but he condemns their righteousness, their false righteousness, their lacking righteousness, their righteousness which had been constructed to impress people. See, Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees is not that they interpreted the law wrong. Usually, Jesus agrees with their interpretation. His criticism of the Pharisees is that they didn't fulfill it. They didn't fulfill the law. They didn't live it out in the right way. They may have interpreted it correctly, but that interpretation actually never made it into their lives to change the way uh, that, that they were in a very deep, deep, deep way. And so Jesus goes on to explain in the Sermon on the Mount, in the rest of Matthew chapter 5, that true righteousness isn't really about what you do. It's about who you are. Because what you do flows out of who you are. And so if you're not righteous deep down, you might be able to sort of sublimate righteousness on the outside and convince people and maybe even convince yourself for a little while that you are in fact a good, a truly good and righteous person. But you can't hold that up forever. And eventually you're going to slip and then you have a choice to make <laughs> because you're going to know deep down you aren't as good of a person as you thought. You aren't as good of a person as everyone else thinks. And if you want to hold on to this illusion, this status that you've, that you've constructed, that you are in fact good, then you will choose the road of hypocrisy, which is what the Pharisees did. And that's why Jesus criticized them. 
So in the first major section of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said, but I say. He quotes their tradition, and then he tells them how it was always meant to be interpreted and fulfilled. So for example, he deals with the command to not murder. Okay, we all, that's a very easy command to understand, isn't it? Don't kill anybody. I mean, are any of y'all struggling with not killing anybody? Like maybe some of the dads who's, uh, <laughs> you know, mom went away on retreat and you are left alone with the kids and you're like, you're going to get it, you know? <laughs> Mo- most of us don't, go <laughs> don't live our lives with, with the overwhelming temptation to want to murder somebody. But Jesus says this. He says anyone who's angry with someone else or insults someone else or who labels someone else, like by calling them a fool, is swimming in the same water as a murderer. Why? Because anger causes us to ignore the living, breathing, embodied, complicated fact of another human being. See, when we insult people or when we reduce them to a label, we dehumanize them. We simplify people um, so that they will fit into our category so that we can feel justified or superior. Um, In Jesus' day, the religious elite folks used labels like this, tax collector, prostitute, drunkard, sinner. And Jesus delighted in the people who were known by labels like these. In fact, he told the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 21 that tax collectors and prostitutes will enter the kingdom before you. So here's a question. What labels do you use to murder people in your heart? I wrote a few down. Liberal, conservative, evangelical, woke. See, these are all words in our culture that used to mean something. And now basically they, 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 um, they pretty much only exist for the purpose of labeling people and dehumanizing them at this point in our cultural dialogue. Jesus says, if you refuse to see the fullness of the person standing right in front of you, if you reduce them to a label, um, then even if you didn't kill them with your hands, they're dead to you in your heart anyway. See, if the inside of the cup is dirty, it doesn't matter if the outside is clean. Jesus is after integrity and a life, a character that is transformed from the, in, from the inner being that makes its way into the outer being. So Jesus says, obeying the the law of Moses doesn't make you righteous. Being the kind of person for whom following God's commands comes effortlessly makes you righteous. Now, that might also sound like a bit of an alarming statement because I don't know about you, but obeying God's commandments does not come effortlessly to me. Okay, hear me say that this morning. I am on the road, I am on the journey where this is concerned. But the good news of Jesus is that he intends to make us into those kinds of people. Jesus intends and can make us into the kind of people for whom obedience to God and faithfulness to his commands comes effortlessly and naturally. So how is he going to do that? How is he going to create true righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees? He says he's going to do it um, through discipleship, or another word you could use is apprenticeship, apprenticeship to Jesus. So in other words, it's about training, not trying. 
if I gave you, I don't, I don't give people commands, okay, but like if I, if I gave you all the instruction, after church, we are all going to go outside and we are all going to together run a marathon. How many of y'all could run a marathon right now today after church? I, amazing. I mean, yeah, a couple, people, a couple people might be able to, right? Why? Because they've trained. Because they've trained to do it. When you train to run a marathon, it comes easy. If you haven't trained and you try, you find it impossible. So Jesus is inviting all of us into this process of discipleship, apprenticeship, training on how to live in the kingdom of God. I want to look at this quote from Dallas Willard, um, which will guide the rest of our uh, discussion, and I'm going to try and move fast, so buckle up. Here's Dallas Willard. He asked this question, does the gospel we preach have a natural tendency to produce disciples, apprentices, uh, apprentices of Jesus, or does it have a natural tendency to produce just consumers of religious goods and services? What you present as the gospel will determine what you present as discipleship. Most problems in contemporary churches can be explained by the fact that members have never decided to follow Christ. So I want to look at three gospels which are prevalent in our churches and culture, which are not the gospel of Jesus Christ, and do not present, or do not, um, uh, they, they do not naturally lead to discipleship in the lives of people. The first, and we're going to call these gospels of sin management, okay? Gospels of sin management. The first gospel of sin management is the gospel of mere atonement. The gospel of mere atonement. In other words, the A to Z of Christian spirituality uh, is just that if you believe in Jesus, you can have your sins forgiven and go to heaven when you die. Now, that is in a very important sense true. That is a true thing. Okay, We affirm that Jesus' death on the cross was substitutionary for our sake and in our place, and that it has opened the door to the kingdom of heaven for all people. That is true. And your sins can be forgiven. That is true. But that is not the whole story. See, in the gospel of mere atonement, they've misunderstood the already and the not yet. They look only in terms of the not yet, but not in terms of the already. There's a kingdom here now to participate in, and there's a process that Jesus is calling us into. He's made that process possible by his own death and resurrection, but that process is there, and that process is the means by which he intends to make us into truly righteous people. Um, if all you want from Jesus is his blood so that you can be forgiven, then that's not the attitude of a disciple. That's the attitude of a vampire, okay? Um, the, next, the next incomplete gospel is the gospel of religious moralism. The gospel of religious moralism. Many of you have experienced this, and many of you, like me, are recovering uh, from aspects of this. The gospel of religious moralism involves the use of power, an influence to try and motivate adherence to behavioral codes by means of guilt and shame. Uh, Jesus condemned this approach in the Pharisees uh, because it, did, it doesn't actually produce goodness in people. It turns out that harping on people and, na and nagging them all the time and coming down very, very harshly on them uh, to be good, and especially if you're trying to use guilt and shame to motivate people, it doesn't work. It doesn't actually produce goodness in people. He said to the Pharisees, you tie up heavy burdens on people's backs, which you yourself can't even bear. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. And listen to this one. You travel over land and sea to make a single convert. And then once you do, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. 
there is a way to practice Christianity, to practice religion, that instead of advancing the kingdom of heaven, it actually just unleashes hell in people's lives. And that's what the gospel of religious moralism does. It's a gospel of sin management. And the, the third incomplete gospel is the gospel of secular humanism. See, if the gospel of mere atonement had the inaugurated eschatology wrong in that we're not focusing on the already but only the not yet, the gospel of secular humanism goes the other way, which is it's all about right now and there is no later. So Jesus is not coming back to establish the fullness of his kingdom. Um, you see, in, in this system, uh, they see the kingdom of heaven as sort of synonymous with the ethical project of removing evil in society. So Christianity is not really about dealing with the sin in here. It's about dealing with the sin out there. And you can imagine what kind of attitude this produces in people. <laughs> Trying to implement the ethical standard of God's kingdom now without the belief that Jesus is returning to establish it as only he's able to do. And so in result, like, the result of this is that the ethics of the kingdom are severed from the king. That doesn't work. This produces people who judge harshly according to false categories because there's no conception of a power of evil like we call Satan or of, of good like a, a returning divine Christ. There can only be a cycle of competing power dynamics based on human wisdom. The same thing over and over again, just from different sides back and forth. In churches where the secular humanist secular humanist gospel predominates, the story is usually something like this. A God without wrath brings people without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. Here's N.T. Wright. The world could cope with a Jesus who ultimately remains a wonderful idea inside his disciples' minds and hearts. The world cannot cope with a Jesus who comes out of the tomb and who inaugurates God's new creation right in the middle of the old one. See, these gospels of sin management do not naturally produce discipleship. They leave the character of people fundamentally unchanged. They don't produce true righteousness in people because they're built around systems. The gospel of mere atonement is built around a system that tends to value converting people uh, above helping them mature into wholeness. The gospel of religious moralism is built around a system that values conformity to whatever cultural scripts are enforced in that moralistic community. The gospel of secular humanism is a system that recognizes the impotence of systems, but nevertheless doubles down on trying to wield systems in the fight against systems. So I want to invite you today to reject the incomplete and misguided gospels of sin management and to repent and rethink your life and believe Jesus' gospel, which is the good news, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's Dallas Willard again. I've just given him the pulpit. <laughs> Y'all should read his books. I feel like half my job at Midtown is just trying to get people to read Dallas Willard. But can anyone out there who's read Dallas Willard bat me up, please? Yeah. Can we? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. This is, this is so profound. Look at what he says in his book, Renovation of the Heart. He says, the revolution of Jesus is in the first place and continuously a revolution of the human heart or spirit. It did not and does not proceed by means of the formation of social institutions and laws, the outer forms of our existence, intending that these would then impose a good order of life upon people who come under their power. Rather, his is a revolution of character which proceeds by changing people from the inside through ongoing personal relationship to God in Christ and to one another. 
It is one that changes their ideas, beliefs, feelings, and habits of choice, as well as their bodily tendencies and social relations. It penetrates to the deepest layers of the soul. External social arrangements may be useful to this end, but they are not the end, nor are they a fundamental part of the means. The impotence of systems is a main reason why Jesus did not send his students out to start governments or even churches as we know them today, which always strongly convey some elements of a human system. They were instead, listen, they were instead to establish beachheads of his person, word, and power in the midst of a failing and futile humanity. They were to bring the presence of the kingdom and its king into every corner of, of human life. How? Simply by fully living in the kingdom with him. That's the invitation this morning. As our communion team distributes the elements, let's reflect on this invitation together. Jesus' invitation to you, to me, to the world through us. His invitation is to rethink how we're living our lives in light of this opportunity to live in God's kingdom today and forever by putting our confidence in him. That's what it means to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. It means that we've put so much of our confidence in, in Jesus that we actually obey him. <laughs> we, we, we put so much faith in Jesus that we actually do what he said. It's an intimate and interactive relationship with God for the good of the world. And it starts in the hearts of those who really answer his call to discipleship and to apprenticeship. And so if you and I commit ourselves to being with Jesus and becoming like Jesus and doing the things that Jesus did, then he promises to remake us into people whose lives are pervaded by sacrificial love. He said, no student is above the teacher, but every student who is fully trained will be like their teacher. <clears throat> uh, I'm just noticing I don't have communion elements up here. If someone would be so, oh, over here. Sorry, never mind. Forget it. Thank you for serving me. I appreciate you, man. Thank you. Before we take communion together, uh, I want to explain something very important. I want to explain the basis, and the band can come up at this point too. I want to explain the basis on which Jesus invites us into this kingdom. On what basis can he make this invitation? What gives him the right? What gives him the authority to make this invitation? What gives him the authority to demand righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Jesus can invite us into this kingdom, and he can demand that we have that righteousness, because the righteousness he expects from us is the very righteousness which he himself possesses and demonstrates and promises to generate within us uh, as we obey him through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that righteousness is seen nowhere so vividly as in his own crucifixion and in his resurrection. In Jesus' crucifixion, we see 
that the righteousness of God is displayed before all creation as the king and the judge of humanity is judged in our place. The death of Jesus shows us that God's righteousness is a forgiving righteousness. In fact, all the way to the end, God in Christ died in the act of forgiveness. He died forgiving. So on the cross, God takes the the bloody, mangled corpse of Jesus Christ, and he wedges it in the door between him and humanity as the definitive and everlasting sign of his desire and his invitation that you should come and enter in and discover what it means to be fully alive and to be truly, deeply free. Not just free from the things that torment you from outside, but free even from the things that torment you from the inside. Free from the thing that you regret. Free from the thing that you can't forget. Free from the things that when you put your head down on the pillow at night, they captivate your imagination and cause you to despair, free from the things that you have no control to change about yourself. God invites you to enter into the kingdom and experience the fullness of life through relationship with Jesus Christ. So let's just reflect on that for a moment, silently together with our eyes closed, and then we will take the Lord's Supper together. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us, because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven. Mm